Friends, uh, today we are uh, continuing in our study of uh, First Chronicles, so you can begin uh, turning to First Chronicles. We are in chapter 3 today. We've been moving through First Chronicles, and our first eight or nine chapters of the book are genealogies. And you might come to that in, in your Bible and you say, all right, I get the idea, and just kind of skip over it, skim it, maybe not read it at all, and go on to the next chapter. There, there's just something, though, about doing that that uh, I'm just not comfortable with. Uh, you know, we, we pride ourselves in being a verse-by-verse uh, Bible-teaching church, and so it seems we should go verse-by-verse through all of the Bible. And so uh, that brings us today to chapter 3 of where we left off. Now, let me remind you, the purpose of these genealogies, we are roughly around the year 400. Now, the book of First uh, and Second Chronicles, they come in the middle of our English Bibles, or at least in the middle of our Old Testaments of our English Bibles, But in reality, chronologically, this may be the last book that was written in our Old Testaments. And it was written following the period of the Babylonian captivity. So here is this nation of uh, Judah in particular, but the Israelites, if you will, that was taken into this captivity. Their homeland was destroyed. There's really no semblance of who they were before. And now God is calling them back as he prophesied in his word that they would be dragged away from the land of Jerusalem in particular, and they would come back and they would inhabit it again. And the purpose of First Chronicles, likely written by Ezra, is to remind the people of who we are, what is our uh, great history, who are the descendants, where do the priests come from, who's going to be in charge of the temple, where are the Levites, and so on and so forth. And we'll get into more of that as we move into chapters 4 and beyond. But also the purpose of the genealogies, the author is creating for us bridges, people bridges, if you will. He's trying to bring us from a name that everybody knows, like Adam, to another name that we all know. And he's taking us through these lines of people. Lots of people not even mentioned. Some just sort of mentioned in passing. But then there are key figures that he draws his attention to. So we looked at from Adam to Noah, and then from Noah to Abraham. And that was our study in chapter 1. And then as we moved into chapter 2, we discovered that Abraham had children. And amongst those children were the 12 tribes. And one of those tribes was the tribe of Judah. And then he began to follow the line of Judah, which brings us to a man by the name of David. And now we come into chapter 3, and we are going to be looking at the seventh son of a man by the name of Jesse. Now we have a slide here uh, that some of you have been looking at and not paying attention to me. And that's fine. I understand. Uh, My apologies for that. Uh, And I understand that the writing is not necessarily something that you can read from from where it is that you're seated. And I don't put these slides up here for you to be able to read every single one of them. It's to give you the overall picture. And so you look at this overall picture, and you look at the top, and you see Israel there. And then you look toward the bottom, and with an arrow, I have pointed out to you that there is this fellow by the name of David. Now, this family line that we are going to follow in chapter 3 is quite significant. David just isn't some nice Jewish boy Uh, in Israel, but he is the man who would go on to become the king of Israel. So this is a royal family line. 
And if you look at verse 1 of this royal family line, one thing that you'll notice, it says in verse 1, these are the sons of David that were born in Hebron. If you look to verse 5, it says, and these were, the, the, they, these were those that were born to him in Jerusalem. And so what you might say is that there are eras of David's life. And I think we do this as well in our families. We say things like, oh yeah, that was back when we lived in Lambertville, for my wife and I, for instance. Or that was back when you worked for Ewing High School, I might say, uh, in my situation here. There's errors of our lives. And David had a couple of eras, E-R-A-S, not errors, mistakes. But he had a couple of eras in his life. And one of those involved the period of time that he lived in Hebron. And then the other of which we're going to draw attention to in this passage today is the period of time that he lived in Jerusalem. This is a rough map of those two uh, sites there. And Jerusalem is in the southern portion of Israel. It's in the area of Judah. You can see it pointed out there, not too far uh, from the Dead Sea. And roughly 100 miles away is the town of Hebron, a little more inland as you make your way toward uh, the Mediterranean. 100 miles is not that far. But the life that David was living and the journey that took him from Hebron to Jerusalem must have felt like for him a million miles. And we're going to spend our time today And we are going to look at it. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. And then we'll read our passage. Father, as we consider this journey of David, Lord. Father, I pray that uh, within each one of our hearts. Father, that we would be able to really just place ourselves uh, sort of in his shoes, in his life. And be able to bring all of that together in our hearts and our minds. And the difficulties, the struggles, the process whereby you bring us through the experiences, all of which that you designed to teach us, to bring us to a place, Lord, that you would show us, as you said to Abraham. So, Lord, I pray for uh, our time today. Use your word in our hearts. Bring it alive, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the passage begins, verse 1. It says, Now these are the sons of David, who were born to him in Hebron. The firstborn, Amnon, by Ahinoam, the Jezreelite. The second, Daniel, by Abigail, the Carmelite. The third, Absalom, whose mother was Makah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, whose mother was Hagith. The fifth, Shephatiah by Abitel. The sixth, Ithrim, by his wife Eglah. Six were born to him in Hebron, where he reigned for seven years and six months. And so, if we were to break that down, these would be the children of David, each of which were born to him by a different wife, The Bible doesn't make commentary necessarily on that in this location here, but what we discover as we read through the rest of the scriptures, that the admonition for David was to not take these many wives, and that it's these many wives which cause, not the wives, but the the offspring and the descendants and so on, which cause a lot of the problems of his life in the latter years. No commentary is made on that here, but certainly the scripture teaches to that. As you continue in the passage, it says, And he reigned 33 years in Jerusalem, and these were born to him in Jerusalem. Shimea, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon, those four by Bathsheba, the daughter of Amiel. Other places in the scripture we learn her name is Bathsheba, so pronounced in a different place, perhaps in a different era. The daughter of Amiel, then Ibhar, Elishema, Eliphalet, Noga, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishema, Iliada, and Eliphalet. So four of his kids share two names. Uh, it's kind of peculiar. Anyway, all these were David's sons, besides the sons of the concubines, and also Tamar was their sister. And so if we were to put a chart up there, and again, I know you can't read all these names, but you can see all the way off in the end, the little pink one there perhaps, that's little Tamar. Uh, sweet little girl. I'm sure he had other daughters, but 
the reason she is mentioned is because her name's going to come up later on. And so it's mentioned here uh, for us. And so if you were to take all of David's sons born in Hebron and his sons that were born in Jerusalem, slide number five would show you this is what his family line would look like. And as we said, this is not the, con- the sons of the concubines or uh, all of his daughters necessarily. So David had many offspring, like his great-great-grandfather Abraham. He had many sons. Many sons had David. Uh, we could sing the song. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, you probably know that David was the king of Israel. You probably are aware that David went on to be the greatest, perhaps, of the kings of Israel, rivaled maybe only by his son Solomon. Many of you probably know today the nation of Israel looks back to its great heritage of King David. You look at the flag of the nation of Israel, and there's the star of David. So David is a great hero to the Jewish people and even in world history. And you might look at that and you might say, you know, boy, he must have had a great life. From a young age, cushy child, you know, silver spoon in his mouth, everything went his way sort of thing. But that, the scripture, as you read that, you learn that that's not the case at all. And today what I wanted to do was to take us through sort of the journey of David from the days out in a field as a shepherd boy to the days in which he made it to be the king of the nation of Israel. As we learned last year, David, or last week I should say, David was born the youngest son of a relatively insignificant man from a relatively insignificant city. David being the youngest son of Jesse from the city of Bethlehem. And his job was the job that they would give the youngest kid in the family. The boy who pretty much couldn't do much else, but, you know, how wrong can he go watching over some sheep? And so put him out there and we'll let, you know, the sons build houses or go fight wars or do the important stuff. And so David then is sent out into the wilderness. And I appreciate this part of the story here because one of the things that we discover about David is the many things that God taught him while he was a shepherd boy. And see, so for many of us, we look at our lives and we're like, I'm wasting my time in this place. This stinks here. I don't like this job. I don't like being in school. I don't like being in this relationship. I don't like this. I don't like that. And so we look ahead when God tells us to look into the midst of. Because God has something to teach us in the midst of every circumstance of our lives that we are in. And I think we err in our relationship with God when we look on to the future as opposed to the current day and the present. And as you read through the Psalms and you think of the things that David discovered, you discover that David learned a lot about his relationship with God and the person he was going to be as he sat out there staring at a bunch of sheep and wondering what his life was all about and the purpose of it. And so here is David out there just living a simple little life, being pushed aside as the little younger brother, until one day, as we heard last week, that the prophet Samuel comes into the town of Bethlehem. Now David is not in the town, he's out in the fields. Or in the village, he's out in the fields. And as we told you yesterday, or last week, Samuel makes his way in. He's going to anoint one of the sons of Jesse. And the brothers are brought in. Eliab is brought in. Aminadab is brought in. Shimei is brought in. And one after the other, these six other brothers are brought in. And God does not confirm into the heart of Samuel that any of them are going to go on to become the king. And he puts out this desperate cry, almost a cry of confusion. I really thought God said to come here. Don't you have any other sons? And Jesse almost says, no, we don't have, oh, yeah, well, yeah we do. We, we have one little guy, you know, he's out in the field, but he's just a shepherd boy. And Samuel says, well, I'm here anyway, let's see, you know, go get him, bring him in. And immediately God puts it on his heart, that is the one. And David's life is going to be significantly altered as a result of that encounter, but not yet. Because after that encounter, David is sent 
back out into the field to be a shepherd boy. Now, we don't know how old David was necessarily. We can assume he was 10, 12, maybe at the most 15 years of age as this shepherd boy. We don't know the exact time uh, that Samuel came and anointed him to be the next king. But we do know that there was a period, a length of time, that here is this man with a calling, boy, with a calling on his life to be the king of Israel, and yet he's doing this waste-of-life job out watching these animals. And God is all in that, and he is working. As I said, he does not become the king at that moment. In fact, we learn in 2 Samuel 5 that David doesn't become the king until he's 30 years of age. So if that means he was 10 or 15 years of age, we're talking about 15 years later, 20 years later perhaps, that he actually becomes the king. But at least you would think, well, maybe vice king. You know, maybe I could become the secretary of Israel or state or something like that. But no, as I said, he was sent back uh, into the field. Well, in 1 Kings 16, or excuse me, 1 Samuel 16, somewhere around that age, that's where he's anointed. He goes back into the field. God wants to teach him. Why? I think God wants to teach him to care for people in the same way that you care for sheep that are dumb. No offense to anybody here. He wants to teach him to learn to love people that are prone to wander. And there's a song about that. Our hearts are prone to wander. But if you're the shepherd of a people, you're the king of a people, and they continually wander off from you, there could be the temptation to be frustrated, to be angry, to be mad, to call, you know what, go out there and get crushed. And don't come crying back here to me. But David had these sheep, and he had to go continually out and care for these sheep and find them when they wandered off and do the, the necessary hard things. He learned how to discipline people as he learned how to discipline the sheep, but never in a way in which they would be utterly broken, but that they would always be restored in the same way that God deals with us. And the scripture says that a bruised reed, he shall not break. He knows how to discipline us, but to do so in a way where we'll be mended and we'll be able to move on from there. And so in many ways, you might say David is now in king school and God has some lessons for him to learn. Now, it was during this time in king's school, elementary school, we'll, we'll call it, that God brought David through an elective course, serving in the house of the king of Saul. And we read this story in the second half of 1 Samuel 16. Now, you remember, Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. He, he has children. He has sons. David is from the tribe of Judah, which means David is not in the family kingly line. I don't know, uh, and, I, and I haven't been able to find in the Scripture, how much Saul knew at this time about David's anointing. My suspicion is that this whole anointing of David was something that was relatively kept secret. Lest Saul come and seek out David and kill David. We do discover later on that Jonathan, Saul's son, is aware of it. And we assume that Saul might be aware of this as well. But at this particular point in time, we don't necessarily know. Now, Saul had sons. One of them was Jonathan, who clearly the text seems to indicate is being groomed to be the next king. And here comes in little David. Now the circumstance of David's coming to the king's house was that Saul was being, as the scripture says, tormented by an evil spirit. And because of the anguish that this evil spirit caused, his advisors suggested, bring somebody in that can play some music for you so that when you're under that angst, that you could kind of be soothed by the nice melodic music. And so their words to him are, behold now, it says, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. 
Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the evil spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you shall be made well. Now, this is roughly what a lyre looks like. Alrighty, And so essentially it's a harp. So here is David now sitting in this palace playing a harp for this guy that's going crazy every now and again when an evil spirit comes and troubles him. And I'm sure he asks the question, why am I here? What is the purpose of this? What am am I learning from this? And I think he is introduced at this point to the inner workings of the palace. I think God is using these circumstances to show some things to David. I think he has a first-hand look at the way that Saul is responding to certain things, and he's making decisions for himself. Yes, I like the way Saul did that. I would do that as well if I were king. No, I don't like that. And I wouldn't do such and such thing. And he's observing these things. He's having his first-hand experience. Here he has the opportunity to learn what to do and what never to do. And these are very valuable experiences. Now, if you're like me, and we were in David's sandals, we might want to run ahead and get ahead of God. I'm ready. I'm 16. I know everything. I'll be fine. I'll be a good king. Maybe, you know, I'll just kill Saul off so I can take over the throne. But we need to wait on the Lord's timing in all things. And he will direct us and he will guide us and he will grow us and he will teach us and he will bring us to the place where the time is right and we will know that it is right. Well, after a few years of this elective course here, these studies, God was ready to promote David to the next grade. So he's going to move from elementary school to middle school. But first, there has to be an exam. And the exam that we read about is in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And his exam involved delivering lunches. Humbling. I'm the next king of Israel. I don't work for Domino's. I'm not delivering anything to anybody, but humbling. So David does it. And as we learned last week, when he gets there, he encounters Goliath. And there David, I think, he would learn what God can do through a man that is passionate from what God brings from within. So God puts a burden on David's heart, and that comes out. And look what God is able to accomplish through a man that is righteously passionate. God is able to slay a giant through this. Nobody else would take on the giant, but David was moved in his heart. In addition to this lesson uh, that David learned, God will use the experience to thrust David into the public sector. You see, God knew that, you know what, it was time, David. You've been on the backside looking at 12 sheep, practicing your sermons or your king speeches or whatever it may be. But now it's time, and I'm going to put you into the public sector a little bit. And people are going to see who you are, and they're going to know your name, and they're going to congratulate you, and they're going to shake your hands. David is taken from hand. David is taken from anonymity, and he would now be tested with public recognition. And soon he would move up the political ladder so to speak. And from this day that he slew the giant, Goliath, his life was significantly different. Matter of fact, Saul comes up to him, finds him. Who are you? What, you know, he, that's kind of confusing. It seems that he knew who David was. That's the kid who plays the liar for us. But you know, what's your heritage? You know, what's your background? Who are you from? And he said, well, I'm the son of Jesse. Nobody knows who we are. No big deal. And he says, well, you're going to come to the palace. And I'm going to give you a job there. And he wouldn't return to the field as a shepherd uh, to sheep, but rather he was sent directly from battle, if you will. Using our school analogy, he was sent off to boarding school. And that boarding school was in the king's palace. And slide number 9 tells us, 1 Samuel 18, Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Now, 
that brief visit where he would play the liar, I sort of think of that as like a shadow visit. Sometimes kids are going to look at a new school, think if they want to attend this school, so they'll shadow another kid for the day. And in a sense, David was shadowing uh, that particular day. And he likes the school, and this becomes his full-time place of learning. Now, First Samuel 18 tells us that it was during this time that David was also placed in charge of his own regiment and that he would be sent out frequently into battle. It also tells us that every time he went out, he was quite victorious, consistently victorious. So much so that they wrote a song about him that was on 99.1 on the local station of Israel there. And it said that the women sang that Straw, Saul, I should say, has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now, I don't know if numerically those numbers are accurate, but they're making a point that David is our hero. Everybody likes this song. David probably thinks that's kind of catchy. I like that little song there. There's one guy who doesn't like this song, and that is King Saul, as you can imagine. King Saul was not a big fan of the whole ascribe greater glory to some kid than me song. 1 Samuel 18, verses 8 and 9, excuse me, maybe I don't have it, so never mind, I'll read it to you. It tells us that Saul was very angry. It tells us that Saul was displeased, and it tells us that from that day on, he began to eye David. So now he doesn't like David anymore. No fault to David. This is significant here. Because these events and this displeasure that comes from Saul, this anger that comes from Saul, this eyeing of Saul is again going to significantly change David's life. And it's going to send David into a wilderness experience for some 15 years where he runs for his lives and lives among the caves and so on like that. And you can look at that and you can say, this stinks. This is not what I signed up for, God. When I went into that place there in Bethlehem and that fellow with the long beard poured that oil on my head and said I was going to be the next king of Israel, I said, okay, good. And now you're sending me to live in some caves. This is not what I agreed to. And it's not what I signed up to for, I should say. We read in the passage that Saul tries to kill David, throws spears at him. David is somewhat nimble, apparently, and able to get away from flying spears that um, are sticking into the wall. We learn uh, that, that Saul's son Jonathan sort of becomes a friend to David, or not sort of, becomes a best friend to David. And he says, look, let me, let me find out what dad, what's really going on in dad's heart, you know, and then I'll come back and I'll tell you. And, and Jonathan says, you better run. He is mad, and there's nothing we're going to be able to do about it. And David then, he goes and he runs. Fifteen years, I said. If it was me, and I suspect maybe David, I know some of you, if it was you, you'd probably be sitting there one late evening, with the stars out there, and you're out in the middle of some field, and asking yourself, or asking God these questions, God, where are you? God, why? Why would you do this? Just because you have power to do this? Do you really want to bring me through this misery, God? God, what is the purpose of this? Maybe if he was really honest, it was a situation of, God, I don't like this, and I'm beginning not to like you and what you're doing here through all of these circumstances. And, but this is a very, very important point. Because you might look at this circumstance, you and I, and we might be tempted to think life isn't going the way I wanted it. Life isn't going according to the blueprints uh, that I had put out there. And we might begin to question, is it because of sin in my lives? And, and there are some people that would teach this. That if your life isn't perfect, if your life isn't ideal, it isn't going exactly the way you would choose it to be. Sometimes it may be the result of sin, but there are some that would teach it is always the result of sin. And that is a tragic mistake. Because there's the poor soul that is sitting in the midst of the circumstance 
and they've lost a loved one, or they've lost a job, or they've been persecuted wrongfully, and they're searching their heart and they're wondering, what have I done to deserve this? And the answer is nothing. But they can't hear that answer because of the lies that are being taught. And David here has done nothing to deserve this. He wasn't running around. He wasn't boasting. He wasn't drawing attention to himself or anything of this nature. He was simply following the Lord and the Lord's leading. And because of that zeal that consumed him, that caused him to say, let's kill Saul, one thing led to, an, not Saul, excuse me, Goliath, one thing led to another. And here is this man now that is moving on to, so to speak, a doctorate program in King's School. He's made his way through elementary. He's made his way through middle school. He's skipped high school. And they put him right into the graduate level programs here. And he is now working on his doctorate. But it's during this time that David would learn some of the most important lessons that I believe he needed to learn. I would strongly suggest to you this particular book here. It's called The Making of a Man of God. It's by Alan Redpath. And it goes through the life of David, looking at the Psalms, looking at First and Second Samuel, looking at Chronicles, and so on. It's a fantastic book. Let me give you an idea of some of the lessons that David was taught by God during this time in the wilderness. The first one, Psalm 56. He writes, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I trust, and I, not, I shall not be afraid. He wrote that on some form of a piece of paper as he sat in a cave. And as hundreds of soldiers of Saul were gathering around him trying to find him. Psalm 56 tells us that. In Psalm 54, also during this period of wandering, he says, O God, save me by your name. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not see God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper, and the Lord is the upholder of my life. Valuable lessons. For a man that was sort of a hero who could very quickly begin to say, you know what, I'm good. I can take care of myself. I'm, I'm the one who's slain ten thousands. But now everything is turned on him. The king's anger is against him. And the king controls the military. And now the military is seeking him out. In Psalm 55, he says, Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. These are valuable lessons to learn. If you would please turn with me to Psalm 57. This is another one. And you notice the numbers of the Psalms, 54, 55, 56, 57, and so on. This little section of the Psalms are during this period of David's running from Saul. From one place to the next to the next. We'll study that as we get further along in First Chronicles. But let me, uh, let me read Psalm 57 relatively quickly to you. It says, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and he will save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man, whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen in it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I think he's telling his heart, be steadfast, be steadfast. 
You're freaked out. You're scared. You're beginning to doubt who God is. But God, these are the things that I know about you. My heart is steadfast. My heart will be steadfast. He goes on and he says, I will sing and make melody. Awake my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. Can you imagine? Running for your lives wondering life, and wondering where God is and yet waking up early in the morning and singing these songs of praise. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens and let your glory be over all the, all, over all the earth. You might call this David's wilderness experience. And one of the things that I have discovered in my study of the Scripture as well as my study of uh, great Christians, people that I just admire for their faith, whether they be people I've met in the past or just people that I've read about, whatever it may be, is that God takes great men and women of God through what we might call wilderness experiences. Difficult, challenging places in life. God brings them to them to, through those places. They are not anti what God is trying to do. They are exactly what God is trying to do because God needs to do some teaching. You know, a lot of us, we can learn through reading a book. We can learn through studying our Bible, sitting here on a Sunday morning. And that's all theory in reality. It's the practical, bring you into it. All right, let's see how you do with the exam. That's where God really nails things down and solidifies things. And so we look in the scripture and this period, David would be tempted to think that God rejected him, as were the others. It's during this period that he would likely conclude that the dream to become the king has suddenly died. That would be a temptation he would struggle with. We look in the scripture, we see that the patriarch Joseph from the book of Genesis spent 20 plus years in a wilderness experience, sitting in, uh, working as a slave, sitting in jail, all these sorts of things. We saw that Sarah, the wife of Abraham, faced 90 years of barrenness, especially the last 20 or so of those years, trying to hang on to the promise that God was able and to the belief. We saw that Moses, or we know that Moses, spent 40 years in a wilderness experience as a fugitive of the nation of Egypt on the backside of some desert, wondering, God, I thought that you called me. The entire nation of Israel would spend 70 years in a wilderness experience until God could bring them to a place where they could listen to him. The Apostle Paul spent 14 years in the wilderness. The Apostle John was sent to die on an island. But it was on that island that God revealed to him the revelation of the coming of his son. And so today, maybe, you're like uh, others. I, I shouldn't say like me right now. I'm not in that place, I would say, right now. But I've been in a place from time to time where I wonder if God is there. I wonder, God, what are you doing? I wondered if God's timing was off and askew and that God was somehow messing things up. So I've been in a barren place at times in my life here, and I wonder if you're like that as well today, wondering, God, where are you? Wondering, God, why would you do this to me? And the example of Scripture is that God is in the wilderness. Where are you? I'm right here. And the answer of Scripture is that God uses the wilderness experiences. The practicum exam is far more important than the theory. And that's what nails it down and solidifies it. David learned the most important lesson of his life while running from King Saul. And I think we can as well. So if you find yourself in a place, a job you hate, amen, and okay, I'll leave it at that. A relationship, please don't amen this. 
a relationship that strains you, a ministry that is taxing, and you wonder if you should bother with it anymore, then I want to encourage you to look to God in the circumstance and ask Him with the sincerity of heart the same words that David said. This is Psalm 86. David said during this time period of his life, he said, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. That prayer would mean one thing if he was sitting on a throne. I think it means something completely different when he's sitting in a cave and he's hiding. And so if you're in that difficult wilderness experience place, I'd encourage you, sincerity of heart, pray that prayer. Well, David's wilderness experience eventually comes to an end. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 31 that King, David, or King Saul would die in the midst of battle. We also learn that in the midst of that battle that the heir to the throne, Jonathan, uh, who was David's best friend, really, he dies as well in that particular battle. And after news of this, and after a period of mourning, because not only did they lose the king, but David lost his best friend. And so the first few chapters of Second Samuel will read that there was a period of mourning. What we also discover is that shortly after that mourning, that one of the 12 tribes of Israel decides to buck the system and to name David as the king. And that's the tribe of Judah. And it's now that he is the, tribe or the king of one of the 12 tribes, he is going to rule the tribe of Judah from the city of, verse 1 of 1 Chronicles 3, Hebron. I don't think any of you said that, but that's good. So that brings us back to where we started. And so for seven and a half years, he is going to rule from Hebron over one tribe, the tribe of Judah. Now, 11 of the 12 tribes, the others, they're still going by the name, if you will, of Israel. And they decide to name one of Saul's other sons, not Jonathan, who is dead, but one of his other sons, a son by the name of Ishbosheth. And Ishbosheth, would have, he would rule for a couple of years, two or three years, I think it says, and then he would be murdered. It's a cool story, not for him, certainly, uh, but you can read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 4. And upon the death of Ishbosheth, now the way is cleared where David potentially could go on to become the king of the entire nation. He would continue to rule in Hebron for seven years, but eventually he would move his rule to Jerusalem. And so, anyway, we come back to this slide. These are the sons born of David in Hebron. These are the ones that were born in Jerusalem. And then from David, turn back, if you will, please, to Second Chronicles. From David, the author, who is Ezra, he tell, goes on to tell us the other sons now of David. And his specific purpose here is to bring us to verse 10. And that is to get us to this man, Solomon. Not that David's other 20 kids weren't important, but for the purposes of Ezra, this is the bridge. And we are getting from one guy to another guy, and we're going to go from, so from David, specifically we want to go to Solomon. And so if you start in verse 10, it says, Now the son of Solomon was Rehoboam, Abijah his son, Asa his son, Jehoshaphat his son. Joram, Ahaziah, Joash, Amaziah, Azariah, his son, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Ammon, Josiah, his son. Now, in each of those instances, we don't have every one of their kids that were born. But we are following a specific family line that is going to take us from Solomon. And as the last name that I just read to you there was this fellow by the name of Josiah. And all of those eight or ten names that are in between, all of them are kings of Israel. Or Judah, excuse me. 
each one of them. And so I've tried to draw a picture here, and I certainly know that you can't read these necessarily from where you're seated. But the purpose of this is just to show you that from David through Solomon, straight on down, you have eight or nine or ten, I, I didn't actually count, kings of Judah. Solomon becomes a king roughly around uh, 950 or so, right around 1000 BC. And from 1000 to 600, you have all of these kings that are ruling. We read about every one of them in First and Second Chronicles. So we'll go back and we'll talk specifically about each. But sadly, each one of those guys, their life is summed up in a verse. And it'll either say something to the effect of, he did that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord, or he followed the Lord and served him with his whole heart. It all comes down to that for these guys. Sadly, the nation of Judah went astray, certainly by the leadership of their kings and so on. And it brings them to roughly, as you see, 600 B.C. And in 600 B.C., the nation, roughly, was taken into captivity by the Babylonians. The Babylonian nation was a cruel, horrible nation. There were instances where people would rather kill themselves off than to be taken captive by the Babylonians, much like 100 years earlier with the Assyrians. Cruel, horrible nation. But God made it very clear, if you submit to them, you go into the captivity and all that sort of stuff, I will bring you back. The prophet Jeremiah tells us that in 70 years they would return to the land. Let me continue in our passage, verse 16. Go back to 15. It says, Now the sons of Josiah, Johanan, the firstborn, the second, Jehoiakim, the third, Zedekiah, and the fourth, Shalom. Now you move on. It says, Now the descendants of Jehoiakim. He's one of the kings. So that's the one we want to look at. It says, Jeconiah, his son, Zedekiah, his son, and the sons of Jeconiah, the captive. Now I'll stop there with the words, the captive. That's referring to the Babylonian captivity. And so... If we return in our scriptures, please, uh, to Second Chronicles chapter 36. Please flip over there. Second Chronicles 36. The Babylonian captivity and the Babylonians coming in and conquering the, the nation of Judah. Remember by this time, or maybe you don't know, so let me go back and tell you. Uh, after the death of David, Solomon becomes king. After the death of Solomon, the nation splits in two. Ten tribes uh, become the nation of Israel. They're the northern tribes. And they begin to follow, and I always mix it up. I forget if it's Rehoboam or Jeroboam. They begin to follow one of those two. The other two tribes begin to follow Solomon's son, Rehoboam or Jeroboam, whatever one it is. I forget at this particular instance, nor do I think it really matters in your life. All right, And so you have this circumstance where the nation is divided. Roughly around the year 700, Syria, Assyrians that live north of Israel, they come down and conquer the ten tribes. And they take them off into captivity. Judah continues to remain safe. It's a hundred years or so after that that Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, makes his way down into the area of Israel, down into the southern portion of the land of Israel, and he comes against uh, the nation of Judah. But he doesn't take them into captivity yet. Essentially, he says, you can be my puppet sitting on the throne. And for about 20 uh, 20 years or so, 19 years or so, that's kind of the way things work out. Until eventually, as we just read here, in the next kingship, Jeconiah's kingship, he says, that's it. We're taking you out of this place and you're going into captivity. And that's where we read about a book like the book of Daniel, where David, as a young man, finds himself in the nation of Babylon. Let me read for you 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Because it tells this story. And it brings us to a very good point. It says, now the people of the land, at least I believe it is a very good point. 
And I hope you'll agree with me. It says, Now the people of the land took Jehoaz, the son Josiah of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for three months in Jerusalem. And then the king of Egypt deposed him in Jerusalem and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And the king of Egypt made Eliakim, his brother, king over Judah and Jerusalem, and changed his name, and this is what we read in, in the beginning of First Chronicles, changed his name to Jehoiakim. But Necho took Jehoahaz, his brother, and carried him to Egypt. Necho would be like a pharaoh or a king of Egypt. Now you look on to verse 5. It says, Now Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And sadly, it says, He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. And against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also carried parts of the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his palace in Babylon. You remember there in the middle of Daniel, I think it's chapter 5, where they're having a party and they're drinking out of the vessels uh, that came from the, ta- the temple and then the hand is found writing on the wall. You may be familiar with that story. These are the vessels and this is the time that they were taken. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and the abominations that he did and what was found against him, behold, they're written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. And Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. Now, this, I don't even know if you remember the names that I read in First Chronicles, but Jehoiachin is Jeconiah, spelled basically with the same group of letters, but just kind of mixed around a little bit. Uh, that's the same person here. Um, so Jeconiah, Jehoiachin, was eight years old when he became king. I'm sure he did a great job as an eight-year-old ruling over the city, the nation. And he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem, and he did. How much evil can an eight-year-old do? But he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's code, by the way, which means idolatry, and that they allowed the the practices of the false worship to continue. So he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And in the spring of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought little Jeconiah, or Jehoiachin, to Babylon with the precious vessels of the house of the Lord. And he made his brother Zedekiah king over Judah, and Jerusalem. Now Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign. We learned his name in First Chronicles. And he reigned 11 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. Remember uh, from your studies of the book of Jeremiah. Hopefully you do. I'll recall it for you because it brings light to our circumstance here. When Jeremiah spoke, he was not like E.F. Hutton. Nobody listened. To, you guys don't even know who that is. Jeremiah, nobody would listen to Jeremiah. And people would eventually speak to Jeremiah and they would say, you're a downer, man. To use, you know, hippie language, you're a downer. Here we are, we're trying to pump up the nation, this big political rally, and you come out there and you tell us how miserable we are and how miserable things will be. We're looking for positive speakers, not truth speakers. We want people that'll itch our ears or tickle our ears. And so Jeremiah had to speak the truth and they throw him into a pit. Well, one of those men that came against Jeremiah was Zedekiah the king. And it tells us there that he uh, did not humble himself before Jeremiah. It says that he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar. I'm God's people. I'll take on Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, but you're God's people in the midst of sin that God is getting ready to judge. I wouldn't do that if I were you because Nebuchadnezzar, as it says in the book of Daniel, is God's servant. Even though he didn't know God, God was going to use him to accomplish his purposes. So he rebels against him He stiffened his neck. He hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. Then it goes on in 14. All the officers and priests and the people likewise, they were exceedingly unfaithful. They polluted the house of the Lord 
that God had made holy in Jerusalem. And then verse 15, it says, and I'll put it up here for us, it says that the Lord God of their fathers sent persistently to them, so very important, hear these words, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people and until there was no remedy. You know, if you, if you take the scripture and you pull out and you look and you wonder, I don't understand this whole, the word that we would use is the economy of God. I don't understand the way that God is working. I understand if these are God's people, why do they find themselves being conquered by people less godly than themselves? People that practice greater abominations than themselves. Because God needs to teach the people of Israel, Judah in this case. And their hearts have been so hardened. And he did it the easy way. And he sent somebody in to speak a kind word. And he sent another person. And then the song on the radio played. And wow, that's the same thing I was thinking about. And then somebody else said, hey, I was reading this. And it's so cool. You should hear it. And you're like, that's what I was thinking. And he sent all sorts of messengers their way. But they continued to rebel. I don't think so. No, that's not for me. God, you couldn't be saying that to me. Or I don't want to listen to you, God. And then finally, God had to get tough. And he had to bring them to a place. Now, you, you, we look at that. And we might think God did that because he was sick of them. I'm sick of it. Somebody's going to feel some pain in this house here. Get me the spoon, you know, or something. And God is just going to inflict pain to get a little bit of frustration out or something like that. That's not God's heart at all. So very, very important. God sees the big picture. And you know what? You may go through a miserable 70 years here, Israel, but you're going to come out of this and there will be no recorded place again in history where you worship the false idols. You will learn the valuable lesson. You see, I think many of us think what it means to be a Christian is that God intends for us to have a great, happy life. Everything's going to be great. Everything's going to be happy. I'm going to wake up every day with a smile on my face like that fellow on TV. Everything is wonderful. The reality is, as followers of Christ, we go through challenging periods of time. We go through difficult periods of time. We go through times where our hearts are tempted to ask the question, and maybe it comes out, maybe it doesn't, but God, is it worth following you anymore? And many people, they bag it all together, quite frankly. I've been a Christian now about 25 years, and I've seen a lot of people come and a lot of people go. And oftentimes what causes people to go is that it gets tough. It gets hard. This isn't fun anymore. This isn't enjoyable anymore. Where's the joy that I was supposed to have? Where's the happiness? Where's the smile? Why am I having difficult times? Because God uses difficult times. Sometimes they're brought into our lives because of sin in our life. Because God wants to bring us out of that area of sin. Sometimes they come into our lives because we live in a fallen world. Sometimes they're the specific design of God to teach us and to grow us. I don't know where you're at in your life, but I would encourage you. If you are in now, or you enter into, in the near future, a difficult, challenging period of time where you wonder where God is, then I, I encourage you, take your eyes off the problem and look around because he's seated somewhere near you. And he wants to speak a word into your heart. And he wants to teach you. And he wants to grow you. That was the wilderness experience that David experienced. It was what the nation of Israel or Judah here has to experience. And it's what God has for us. Let's go before the Lord. Let's invite the worship team.